The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. All right, we're going to get started. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about areas when Christianity and the culture are in conflict with each other. And the reason why this is so important for me right now is in this past year, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Rhett and Link. Anybody, you guys know who Rhett and Link are? Yeah, so Rhett and Link were, um, yeah, uh, they... Up until this year, they were Christian YouTube guys who had gotten started at NC State. And uh, then this year, they came out and did a couple podcasts where they were deconstructing their faith. And they decided that they're no longer Christians anymore. And it was really discouraging. And it, and it looks like a, a planned, calculated attack against Christianity. One of them is going against intellectual things. One of them is going against emotional appeals. It's just really discouraging. And for me, it's even more discouraging because these guys are, they're, they're the same age that I am. We grew up in the same basic background. We have a lot of the same friends. So the guys that, we had folks that worked here who used to work um, with the ministry, the Campus Crusade, they were part of at NC State. And so, and we have a bunch of students who will watch, they have a, a YouTube show every morning called Good Mythical Morning. They've done a bunch of really funny videos. We've used some of them at camp. I mean, it's just pretty, dis- they were even did, they even did uh, stuff for, if you guys ever watch, if you work with your kids ministry and you look at Buck Denver's What's in the Bible, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody? No, it's okay. Anyway, they do funny songs for that. So, really discouraging because now they're saying, oh, we're not Christians anymore. We moved out to California. We adopted a California Christianity. And they start listing things that traditional Christians, because they believe the Bible, agree to. And they say, we don't believe those things anymore. Well, okay, so now what do we do, right? So they're not Christians and they're telling people, you shouldn't be Christians either. You can't trust what's in the Bible. Um, And the reason for that is because there are a lot of things in the Bible that are countercultural. You know, we, we hold to beliefs that our culture doesn't agree with. Well, of course, because our culture isn't Christian and we're holding to the Bible. So for us, if we're going to help our students navigate this, because our students, they're right in the middle of all this cultural conflict. We need to help them um, to have what I'm calling an uncompromising, unapologetic commitment to biblical fidelity. Right, that we have to believe the Bible. We hold to everything the Bible believes. If we don't hold to all of the Bible, then we have no foundation. Right? So we, we can't just say, and this is where I got real it got real personal for me because I started like studying through these things and I found myself saying, like, man, well I wish God had said this. Ooh, ouch, right? I wish that God had said something differently, like, yeah, who's the standard here? Not God, it's me. That's not right. You know, we've got to look at, because there's subtle ways that we do this, and we've got to be real careful, because we can't, we, we have a foundation for our faith in this word that God has given us, and that has to be our foundation. If we put anything else above that, then we've lost our foundation. We don't get to pick and choose the things in the Bible that we want to hold to and we don't want to hold to. You understand? I mean, that's a big deal, and this is what we have to be conveying to our students. And this is, this is huge, right? We can't be embarrassed by any part of the Bible. 
Right. Doug Wilson, he's a pastor in Idaho, he says, if those who hate the word of God can succeed in getting Christians to be embarrassed by any portion of the word of God, then that portion will be continually employed as a battering ram against the godly principles that are under attack. What he's saying is, if, if you're embarrassed about any part of the Bible, then people will use that to attack Christianity. And they're like, oh, well, you believe the Bible? Sure, but you know that the Bible oppresses women, so that's what you do too. And you're like, oh, but what, oh, what, what? so what do we do with cultural conflict, right? So we can either, you know, we can just apologize and make excuses for the Bible, right? Oh, man, yeah. I also wish the Bible didn't say that. We could do that. We could just agree with the Bible is wrong. Oh, yeah, that's not, that doesn't apply now. Or, This is where the hard work comes in. We seek to understand the context of the Bible. What is it really talking about? And then commit to follow God's word even when it's unpopular. Right? And this is where I think we have to land. We have to seek to understand what is God really saying. And if it's in, if it's, um, if the Bible is in conflict with our culture, what's more important? Right? It's, is it, is it, what has more weight? Right, this temporal cultural context that we find ourselves in, or the word of the eternal transcendent God, which has more weight, right? Because the fact that we're talking about cultural conflict, we know that it's going to be temporary, right? Because cultures are changing, right? There's going to be a fight now, and then in 20 years, it's going to be it's going to be about something else completely. So the standard that matters is God's word, and we need to realize that God said, or Jesus, particularly. He said that, um, that we are going to be unpopular if we're holding to his word. In fact, in Luke 21, he says this. They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of, them, some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Okay. If we have that as our mindset, you know, if we're going to be faithfully committed to God's word, then this culture will hate us. Okay, then that gives us a better perspective, right? And our goal then, right, is we need to see exactly what is scripture saying, especially involving these difficult questions, and then just commit to follow that. And if it's unpopular, it's unpopular. But the, what I want to say here is that uh, the, the gospel, the gospel is the right kind of offensive, right? If you are preaching the gospel, then that is going to come, you are going to come into some sort of conflict, right? Because you are saying that the wages of sin is death, that you are held, um, your God is going to hold you accountable and that you need to confess, repent and believe in Jesus or there is no salvation, right? That's a, that's offensive and that's offensive enough in itself. All right. So Here's what we're going to do. We've got 19 minutes. We're going to look through genocide, slavery, gender, and sexuality in hell. No big, right? Just get on a track. We're going to go through this. And here, what I want to do is I want to help provide a framework, right? Because these are, these are questions that students are going to get asked. Oh, yeah, but doesn't God, doesn't the God that you believe in, like, mandate genocide? Okay, so how do we answer these things? Okay. Here we go. Genocide. All right. How can we serve a God who mandated genocide? This is a big deal. You know, because we need to think through when we read through the pages of Scripture, especially when God is sending his people into the promised land, he says, wipe out everybody. Okay, this is true. This is the God that we serve. And so let's, let's step back. And there's a principle that we can follow. One is that God uses nations to execute his justice against other nations. All right. 
And we need to understand, really understand, that the wages of sin is death. So if a pagan nation is wiped out, do they deserve that? Yeah, because of their sin. And if God uses another nation to execute his justice, he is absolutely just and right in doing that. Okay, but let's look specifically at what we see in Scripture. Specifically what we see in Scripture, right? We, this is mandated, right? I'm not gonna, we're not going to... We don't need to be afraid or embarrassed because if we're being afraid or embarrassed of God's Word, we're being embarrassed by God. So look, Deuteronomy 20. This, remember, Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses is giving to the people as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. He says, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And look, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord. All right, so he's saying, yeah, go in. Wipe them all out. Why? Because they're evil. They're, they're pagan. They're doing these abominable practices. And so that you don't do these abominable practices that they've been doing. And so then the question is, was this because of Israel's righteousness? Well, no, it's not. Look, he, in Deuteronomy 9, he makes this very clear. He says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. And this is a quote. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations, that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, that the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that they may, that they may, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So see this? I mean, he's saying they are evil. They're doing abominable practice. Read some, read some um, ancient history. See what they're doing. I mean, we're talking about just taking their kids, throwing them off cliffs, burning them. This is what they would do in service to their gods and he's saying you need to wipe them out because they are sinning they are sinning against me they're doing these abominable practices and he's giving them this land and what's crazy is if god's people well you guys know did god's people wipe them out completely no and did they learn to do those abominable practices yes they did and what's crazy and this is where we get to see god working in amazing ways is that um god used god used other nations to judge his own people so his own people turned away into sin. They started, they gave into idolatry as well. And so God used other nations. That's our principle. God used other nations to execute his justice against God's people. In fact, this promised land that he'd given them, he then takes them out of their promised land. And if you look right in, so in 722, the northern tribes, Assyria, 586, southern tribes, the Babylon, and he spreads them out over the world. And this is what's crazy. Right? They get spread out over the world, and as the, in captivity, they start to turn back to their God. So what do they do? They create little houses of worship. We call them synagogues. Right? And then, in the, when the fullness of time comes, then they're able to travel back to Jerusalem, hear Peter, Peter preach at, at Pentecost. That's a tough word to say. I mean, Peter preach at Pentecost? Should have thought of something better. Anyway, so they hear Peter preach. They come to faith in Christ. And then what do they do? They go back to those synagogues that they had been taken to in captivity because of their idolatry. And God uses that as a springboard for the gospel. What an amazing, I mean, what a cool example of God's meticulous providence, right? Okay, so did God mandate genocide? He did because of our sin. He uses he uses nations to execute justice against sin, and sin rightfully should be punished. 
All right, let's look. Slavery. All right. Uh, When we look at Scripture, when we look at the way that Scripture deals with slavery, there are some things we need to realize. One, that um, in... In Exodus 21, we see that stealing people, man-stealing, is a sin, right? We also see in 1 Corinthians 7 that if someone was able to get out of slavery, then they should get out of slavery. But we also need to understand historically that slavery in the New Testament time period is fundamentally different than slavery when we think about it in, in America, right? When we think about it in America, it's racially motivated, involved stealing human beings and then selling them, right? We would say that this is abominable. Right? This is sinful. This is a sinful practice. Even according to Scripture, this is sinful. And I would say that, that American slavery is sinful, not so much that it was slavery, but because it was racial, right? Because it was racially motivated. When we look at the first century and ancient slavery, slavery was not racial so much as it was economic, right? And remember, because this is what would happen is someone would get into debt, and then what would they do? They would sell themselves into slavery, either to the person that they own or they would sell themselves to someone else who would pay off their debt for them. And in, inherent, and it was the opportunity to actually pay off your debt so that you could get out of slavery. Now, still, we have a situation where human beings are being owned by other human beings, and that is not the way that God intended. So we need to understand that the Christian ethic, if, if faithfully applied in context, it would lead to the end of slavery, even this economically bound one. Because we see um, all people in the image of God would lead to the end of slavery, fall out completely. But in the cultural climate, we see that, God, that the teaching of Scripture, specifically in the New Testament regarding slaves and masters, it's to elevate slaves as image bearers of God. Why do we say that? We see, in, we see Scripture saying that um, masters, they need to treat their slaves with honor and respect because they too have a master in heaven. We see that slaves, uh, this isn't, we wouldn't call slavery one of the um, institutions that God has ordained, but we have instruction on how, on how Christians are supposed to live distinctly as Christian, regardless of the context that they've been put in. And I do think that we see, especially with Philemon and and Onesimus, that we see that the, that if the Christian ethic were really applied completely in a, in a culture, it would lead to the end of slavery. Because remember, we've got Paul writes Philemon to Philemon, who Philemon is a Christian who is a member of a church who owned Onesimus. Somehow he had bought his, bought him uh, his debt, and so he's enslaved to him. And when Paul um, meets Onesimus, and Onesimus comes to faith in Christ, and he's discipling him, he realizes he's a runaway slave. He doesn't say, oh, just get rid of that because you know, you're a Christian now. Let's not worry about slavery. He actually understands that he has he owes, he owes Philemon, right? He's, some, he's purchased his debt, so he owes, he owes Philemon. So Paul sends him back to his slave owner, to his master. And, but when you read the letter, he's saying, man, I know that he's got a debt to you, but why don't you apply it to my account? Isn't that fascinating? And then he says, accept him back, not as a slave anymore, but as a brother. Because what are Christians supposed to do for those who are in debt? Pay it off. Isn't that crazy? So that's so we're saying if we are going to faithfully apply the Christian ethic, yeah, it would lead to an end of slavery, whether economic or racial. All right, next, gender. Is the Bible oppressive to women? Okay, where do people get this? We read in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, with pastor and deacon qualifications. In Ephesians 5, it says, wives, submit to your husband. 
See how oppressive that is? All right. So let's remember, in the context of the first century, both the Greek, Roman, and Jewish uh, communities had a lower view of women. They were seen as second-class citizen who couldn't own property because they were property and they couldn't testify in a court of law. Okay, that's a pretty patriarchal society. So how does the Bible respond to that? I'm glad you asked. In Genesis 2, we see that women are seen as the missing piece of creation. I don't want to read too much into this. If you guys read the book Captivated, it came out right after like um, Wild at Heart. Um, it, she, or, yeah, she went way too much into this. But we do see that in the beginning, God created man first and then said, this is not good until he created woman. That's an elevation of women, all right? Women are seen, remember, in a, in a context when women couldn't give testimony in a court of law, who were the first witnesses of the most amazing event ever at the resurrection? Women. And then the women went and told the men, and did the men believe them? No. If you read through the Gospels, it's crazy. The most faithful followers of Jesus were the women, the men are seen as goofballs until after, you know, the res- well, there's still some afterwards. But anyway, it's, I mean, it's crazy. If you read through it and just look, how is, how is this portraying women? The women are elevated. And then we look uh, in Ephesians 5. Yeah, women are told to submit to their husbands, but look at what it says to the men. Husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her. I mean, this is an elevation of women. And then we talked about this with the guys yesterday, 1 Corinthians 7. I, I call this cultural blasphemy because in 1 Corinthians 7, it's where, uh, where Paul is telling men that their wives' bodies belong to them, which every patriarchal society from, in, from the beginning of history would have said, amen, that's right, she belongs to me. And then it flips it on its head and says that the man's body doesn't belong to himself. He doesn't have authority over his own body, but his wife does. And it's in the context of sexual fulfillment in marriage. And this, no culture ever has elevated women to this status in marriage. Right, so I mean, if someone says, oh man, the Bible is oppressive to women, they just need to read the rest of the Bible. Just read the Bible. All right, the last thing we're gonna talk about is hell. This is from the New York Times, a guy named David Bentley Hart who calls himself a theologian but is not a good one because hell is, again, right? This is, this is in our culture right now. This goes completely against our culture. Are you telling me that God would punish people? Yes. He, but he says this, no truly accomplished New Testament scholar, for instance, believes that the later Christianity's opulent mythology of God's eternal torture chamber is clearly present in the scriptural text. It's entirely absent from St. Paul's writing. The only eschatological fire ever mentions brings salvation to those whom it tries. Neither is it found in the other New Testament epistles or any extant documents from the earliest post-apostolic period. There are a few terrible, surreal, allegorical images of judgment in the book of Revelation, but nothing that properly read yields a clear doctrine of eternal torment, even the frightening language used by Jesus in the Gospels when read in the original Greek fails to deliver the infernal dogmas we casually assume to be true. That is terrible, but that is what our culture is saying. He calls himself a Christian and is saying that God, that the Bible doesn't teach about hell, but the Bible does teach about hell. In fact, Jesus taught about hell more than he taught about heaven, right? We see it all through scripture. In this uh, Matthew twenty five forty six, he says, and this will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I mean, it is super clear. When you read that in the original Greek, it says the same thing. That's why it's a faithful translation, right? And we wouldn't say that this is a happy doctrine, right? But we would, this is sobering. And this should compel us to take the gospel to the nations, right? We believe that if someone dies without putting their faith 
in Jesus for salvation, that they spend an eternity separated from Him, this is why we should be compelled to take the gospel, right? The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? We can't say, oh, but God is loving, and then choose to interpret love the way that we want to interpret it. Right? Oh, God is loving. He wouldn't send people to hell. No, God is loving, and He provided by Christ's own death, burial, and resurrection a way to, for, for forgiveness, right? That's huge. We don't, get to, we don't get to describe God in a way that's contrary to the way that he's revealed himself in the Bible. To do so is to preach a false gospel, which is no gospel at all, but just a sentence of death. All right, so where do we go from here? We need to realize that God is who he is. It's important. God is who he is, and he is who he's revealed himself to be. And we can either accept that and believe in him or we can reject it we don't get to put somewhere in the middle we don't get to say oh yeah uh well god yes i believe this part of the bible but not this part of the bible we lose part of the bible we've lost the whole standard of our of our of our uh, we've lost our whole foundation we've lost our whole standard of truth right we, a nominal cheap shallow christianity is not an option misrepresenting and or softening the gospel is an empty false religion and we need to at the end of the day we can say that god is good and we can trust him Right? And so when we do find ourselves, we're like, man, I don't understand God. That's right. We're finite minds trying to understand an infinite God. And at the end of the day, we're just going to say what Paul said in the end of Romans 11, right? Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Um, how inscrutable his ways. Who's known the mind of God? Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he could be repaid? Right? But from him, through him, to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Right? So we need to make sure that we're instilling in our students an uncompromising, unapologetic commitment to the Bible. And so when we come in, they're going to. I mean, this week, they will come into situations where their, their faith is going to be challenged by the culture that we live in and they are going to be tempted to say oh yeah but that part of the bible doesn't really apply or no but that part of the bible is not true or no yeah you're right god wouldn't be like that well if the bible if we clearly understand what the bible is saying then that is who god is and we can either accept it or reject it we don't get to change who god is because then we'll be making ourselves out to be god 